thank you all so much. Please turn with me to uh, John chapter 6. We're going to be at the very end of John chapter 6, and if you were here last week, uh, we spoke about the middle section, chapter, or verses 25 to 40, about Jesus proclaiming that he is the bread of life. And um, we, we'll probably go a little over tonight. I'll uh, try to keep this brief. Um, but after hearing that there was a 12-hour church service in Uganda, um, I think we can all uh, tough it out tonight. Uh, it, it reminded me when I heard that of, if you've never read this passage, um, it's one of my ones that just makes me smile. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 preached through the night. And it says that a guy fell out of a window. He fell asleep, fell out of a window. And Paul goes out, raises him from the dead, and then goes back in and keeps preaching till dawn. Um, it, it's a pastor's favorite story because sometimes we talk too long, so forgive me. Uh, tonight, we're talking about the second half of that Bread of Life passage. And I titled it Leaving Jesus because that's what people do. You know, we hear, on the one hand, great testimony of what God is doing around the world, but we also know from the psalm reading and and, and from stories, we also hear that people don't care about our Lord. And tonight, we're going to read a story about many people who were following Jesus who just stopped. We know that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, people were drawn to him, like we talked about last week. They saw the great things and the miracles, and they wanted more. And as he began to teach why he was really there, um, he's kind of scared some people off. And as we get into tonight, I just want to point out a few things from the passage just before it. That he physically is talking with these people and they ask him, how are you the bread of life? And he says outright, if you do not eat my blood or eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And the people like Nicodemus to this hard teaching, ask a literal question, and they're like, you, how are we supposed to eat your flesh? This doesn't make sense. And even though this is it's, it's a, <clears throat> a metaphor that Jesus is talking about, we have to take it very seriously. Because what I believe Jesus is talking about, and we will see in, in, in our verses tonight, that Jesus was saying, by proclaiming that he was the bread of life, and that we must drink his blood, that we must be fully tied and united to him, that we must be fully with him in all that we do. And even though it is symbolism, it is still a hard teaching. And as we go leading up to Lent, talking about difficult teachings of Jesus, I think this is a great one to sort of be right at the center of our five weeks of study. Because the cost of discipleship, or the cost, is leaving Jesus. And so please, if you will, join me in reading John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. The Apostle John writes this, On hearing it, saying that Jesus was the bread of life and that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, many of the disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. 
He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So after his explanation, after Jesus goes on this whole sort of diatribe in John chapter 6 about him being the bread of life and, and him being the source of all that we need, that all earthly things must be left beside his disciples, not just the twelve, but many of the other followers he had, which were many, said, who can hear this? Who can accept this teaching? How in the world could we not even worry about the bread on our table? How is this possible? Why is this man saying that to follow him, it costs everything? This is too much. And Jesus knew. Like so often, Jesus knew their hearts as he was teaching them, and he knew what they were thinking, and so he says a question. A question we probably wouldn't expect from Jesus. He says, does this offend you? Now, me being somewhat sarcastic and snarky, I want it to be a sarcastic comment. You know, oh, does this offend you? Oh, too bad, you know. Oh, poor babies. And, and, and someone who may think differently may think, oh man, maybe Jesus was mad. Maybe this was like a, one of the temple moments where he flips the tables over. Maybe he was angry with them and he says, oh, does this offend you? You really don't get it? And I thought about it for a while, and, and, and the Bible doesn't give tone, unfortunately. But I think it wasn't either. I think it was brokenhearted. I, I, I want it to be sarcastic, just because I think that would be more entertaining, but I know this broke Jesus' heart. When we read about the heart of God for people, and we read about the heart of God and what God goes through for these people, Jesus knows as he's sitting across from these people, he knows that this is going to cost his life. And he's looking at these people, and these people essentially say to him by walking out, your life is not good enough for me. It's not enough. I think when Jesus asked this question, does this offend you, he was brokenhearted. He knew these people would not be able to accept his teaching. But he also knew what was most important. He also knew the priority was truth. And then he just sort of keeps going. He says something that's very hard for us to understand being earthly beings and being having only, you know, we're very logical and so we believe what we can see. And Jesus says, <laughs> the follow up What if you saw the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What if you saw that? Would that help? You know, if you saw me in all of my glory, if you saw me how God had originally made me as, as, as one with the Father and with the Spirit, would that help? Would that do it? What a strong statement he makes. And in case you haven't really thought about this too much, we always think of Jesus as the, you know, the guy with the robe and the sash and the hair and the beard. Um, 
Jesus, it says in Matthew 25, when he returns to earth one day, the second coming, he, he's not going to return as the, the Jewish rabbi. He's not going to return meek. He's not going to return mild. He's not going to return calm. In fact, in Matthew 25, it says that he is going to return in glory on his heavenly throne with all of the angels. And I bring this up for this point of reference. And every single time someone sees an angel in Scripture, they're terrified. And it says that when Jesus comes back and when Jesus is in his heavenly state, he's going to be with all the angels, which Revelation 5 numbers about 10,000 times 10,000, so neighborhood of 100 million. So there's going to be this giant army of angels. When, when, one, when we see one, we're terrified. There's going to be an army. And Jesus is going to return in all of his glory on the throne as the Son of God. And he says to them, what if you saw this? It still wouldn't matter to you, would it? You're still not going to believe. Jesus knew. He knew their hearts and he knew it wouldn't work. And as we see in verse 66, that many turned back. Many left. The Gospel of Matthew uses the analogy of the narrow gate and the broad gate. Many choose the broad gate that leads to destruction. But few choose the narrow gate that leads to life. And in this passage, people were following Jesus and just simply said, I I don't want to go through the narrow gate. It's not worth it to me. This is too hard of a teaching. I don't understand or I, I can't give you everything. Jesus says, listen, the things of this earth are just not eternal. It's that simple. The things of this earth will waste away. The things of this earth will be gone. What matters is the Spirit. What matters is what God brings. The things of this earth come and go, but Jesus does not. I spoke about this last night um, up in Baden. We must remember that Jesus is alive still. Jesus did not die and go to heaven just simply to be gone forever. No, he is alive and he is in charge and one day he will return as the king. Jesus has not gone away. And what matters for us here and now is what it says in verse 63, that the Spirit will give us our life. The Spirit will be what matters in this life. But yet some will still abandon Jesus. Some will hear this teaching and say that's not convincing enough. And as a pastor, that's very difficult for me. Because I want to have the answers. I want to look at someone in the eye and I want to say to them, no, 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 let me explain it a way you've never heard it before. But in my experience, some people just don't want to hear it. Some people, as soon as Jesus says, you must give everything to be my disciple, they say, no deal. And it got me thinking. It really got me thinking, gosh, what is it about human beings? What is it about us that makes us want to stand up and fight for something? What is it about human beings that gives us the desire to live and the desire to stand up for what we believe in? You know, and, and immediately, I, I confess, some, in a lot of ways, I'm a typical guy. I love, you know, war movies and movies about heroes. And, and I was thinking about some of these movies I've seen and these movies I like. And I think in modern society, we sort of glorify this idea. We have to have this grand thing that we stand up for. If you're not a fan of war movies, fine. I like romantic movies, too. Think of romantic movies or kids' movies. They're both great. They do the same thing. Society holds up an ideal. 
holds up a moral, holds up a family, holds up a principle and says, this is worth fighting for. This is what we need to be doing. But it's not. See, the difference is, is that we and people want to worship the creation rather than the creator. These morals and these families and these principles are all good things, but they're from God. And so in our allegiance to Jesus Christ, we give all to him. Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and then all these other things will be given to you through me, not on your own. And the problem is many people have put their faith in things they thought were from God, but they really weren't. And they left disappointed, cynical, or jaded. And they thought it would be a good story, but the reality is, is they've worshipped the gift of God rather than God. And, and if you think about it, for every story of great heroics in battle, there's a hundred stories of people dying fearfully. For every great romantic tale of two people sacrificing everything for love, is a hundred stories of people just giving up and quitting on relationships. And I'm not being cynical, I'm just simply being honest. The reality is, is as human beings, we quit all the time. We fight the desire to quit all the time. It's just that the stories of quitters make really bad movies. We don't want to see that story. We want to believe in something. And Jesus says to us in verse 63, The Spirit gives life. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Jesus says, you want to believe in something? Great, believe in me. You want to believe and put your life on something? Put it on me. Does this offend you? Good. It should offend you. The the gospel of Jesus Christ is so offensive. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that you are not good enough. Your best efforts are filthy rags to God and that we need the cross. The question really becomes is, what do we do then? What do we do when following Jesus becomes uncomfortable and we realize this? And I understand there's certain times we have to leave jobs, leave relationships, we have to quit on worldly things. That's fine. But when it comes to Jesus, what do we do? What do we do when Jesus is calling us or asking us to do something that's a stretch? Many of you have taken that leap in, in an international move. <laughs> Went through that in the last year or so. <laughs> what do we do when Jesus calls us to do something big and scary? Um, uh, I want to share with you guys a story. Um, don't go to it yet, Tomas. Um, yeah, that's fine. Leave it there. I, I want to share a story about me. Um, and, and I know I'm fairly open about this stuff, but... I want to share something when this started to make sense. When I was 23 years old, um, I was working as a youth pastor. And if I'm honest, I wasn't living a double life where I was sort of living in this, you know, darkness sometime and then trying to pretend. I I really was trying to figure out how to just be a normal 23-year-old, okay? Um, And so... at the risk of, of, of being a little bit vulnerable, I've decided to share pictures of this person with you. Um, go ahead, Tomas. That is uh, 23-year-old surfer Sam. Um, I had long hair that was dyed blonde. I was about 30 pounds heavier from a poor diet and wasted time. Um, 
I had a 71 Volkswagen bus. I loved that car more than life itself. And this was my life. I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I was really happy, to be honest with you. I, I surfed a couple days a week. I had good friends. I had a lot of fun. But there were times when I would feel out of place. I'd meet new people, and, and someone would ask me, what do you do? And I'd hesitate. Not because I wasn't proud of the work I was doing with young people, but simply because as soon as I said I was a pastor, as soon as I said I worked at a church, someone would think something. It'd be like the first time you meet someone, you say, hey, I'm a Christian, and by the way, I'm not, a committed, or not, I'm not just a Christian, I'm a very committed Christian. I read my Bible all the time. I'm probably someone who you think of as like super righteous and won't like you. Nice to meet you. Because that's what people think. As soon as you meet someone who's not a Christian, they say, oh, you're religious. Oh, you're super religious. Oh, you're a pastor. And, and it, to be honest with you, it was really hard. <laughs> I just wanted to be a normal 23-year-old. As soon as I would tell someone what I did, my secret was out. And I, I had this struggle inside of me, and I remember meeting with a mentor of mine. He's a dear friend of mine. And he asked me, he said, what is it that's causing you? I just said, I want to be normal. He said, so what does normal look like? And I said, well, I want to be a normal 23-year-old. I want to be able to go and hang out and do fun things and not have to tell people I'm a pastor and not feel judged and not have to live by this super high standard all the time. I just want to blend in. And I can remember his face exactly. He's holding a serious gaze on me. for. He's a professional counselor. He's a great guy. And he's holding a serious gaze on me for a few seconds, and he just burst out laughing. And I got so mad. I said, Jamie, what are you doing? I'm here bearing my soul to you, and you're laughing at me. And over time and in conversation, I realized something. Either I'm following Jesus or I'm not. There's no blending when we say we are Christians. The reality was I just wanted to be selfish. I wanted to have a job that made me feel good about myself, and I wanted to be able to go and meet people and not tell them I was a pastor. And, and what's amazing to me is that we all do this in some ways. I think my generation and generations younger than me are really, really bad at this. Because we've convinced ourselves that our faith is ours. It's internal. It's mine. It's private. So I don't have to share it. And most of you are lucky in that your profession is not pastor. So you can hide it. You can hide it for a while. You can pretend it's not that big a deal. Or you can try to blend in for a while. But it only lasts for so long. And then eventually, something happens. And you have to make a choice in front of another person to do what Christ has called you to do or what you want to do. See, we try to be normal Christians. But I have bad news for you all. <laughs> There's no such thing as a normal Christian. We don't blend in very well with society. In fact, Christ has called us to be apart from society. You know, there's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he says, but we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. This is one of the few verses in the Bible where I prefer the King James Version. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, the King James Version says this, says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But then it says this, it says we are a peculiar people. And I love that word because the reality for me, 
I'm not normal. I'm not. I spend my life reading a book most people don't believe in. I stand up here and do public speaking about a topic that most people do not want to talk about in public. I sit and talk with people about things that are eternal, not things of this world. I could not care less about your taxes and your financial situation. Unless it affects your spiritual situation, and then we can talk. It's not fun to talk about this stuff. It's not fun to talk about people wanting to walk away from Jesus because it's too hard to be a Christian. Think of the rich young ruler. Jesus, I've done all of these things since my birth. Okay, sell everything. And he goes away sad because he can't do it. Some people just can't. But go back to our scripture. I want to talk for a second before we close about Peter and about Judas. Jesus turns to the twelve after this, in verse 66, a bunch of people start leaving. And so Jesus looks at his twelve. He says, hey, you don't want to leave too, do you? And I just love Peter. He does so many great, embarrassing things that make me feel better about myself. But Peter says, this is like a shining moment for Peter. He says, what other choice do we have? You've offered us life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rewards him. Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, you're right. This is why I've chosen you. Have I not chosen you, the twelve? But then he contrasts it and we see a contrast with Judas and he says, but yet one of you is going to betray me. One of you is a devil. One of you is not doing what he should be doing. We see a great example of Peter, and then we see an example of someone who knew he couldn't do it, yet stayed around to manipulate and to be malicious towards Jesus. When it comes to following Jesus, I'm convinced of this. There's no such thing as a normal Christian that blends in. If you want to, I'm sorry. It's going to be very difficult for you. I can share you more stories of how I've tried and failed. Eventually, it comes down to it. I can share you more serious and important stories, but eventually it comes down to it, and you have to say, this is who I am. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is my identifier. When we contrast Peter and Judas, we see two examples. One who kept pretending for a while, and eventually it was so weighty on him, he took his own life. And then the other was Peter, who became the rock of the church. Who became the foundation on which we believed as a servant of God. So too, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we affirm our faith. I want to encourage you tonight, uh, as we take communion, to think about this. This is what Jesus says. He says, listen. I have offered you life. Very similar to what Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 30. When Moses is getting ready to die and go back to be with the Lord and leave the people of Israel after he has led them out of Egypt and into the, or not quite into the promised land yet, but almost into the promised land, he says to them, listen, I have set before you life and death. Therefore, choose life that you and your children may live. Jesus did a very similar thing with his disciples before he left. 
He went to his disciples and he, and he said, hey, listen. This is my body. And tomorrow, he did it on the Thursday night before Good Friday, when he had communion with the disciples, he said, it's breaking for you. Whenever you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. And after dinner, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood. Poured out for your sins. And as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Christ gives us a great opportunity. Christ gives us a great invitation. You know, as Joanna was saying, when she saw the need around the world, it, it, it started to overwhelm her. And then God revealed to her, this isn't your burden. Christ has taken our burdens. Christ has taken our worries. Christ has taken the things that cause us anxiety and pain and shame and said, those are mine. You come to me and I will give you all that you need. I will be your bread and I will be your water. I will be your source of all things. Please pray with me. Lord God, we come before you now repenting of trying to hide you. Lord, you know my heart and you know how often I tried. I'm sorry. Lord, we are sorry as your church when we have let you down. Yet, Lord, we also know that because of this promise, we are forgiven. We are your sons and we are your daughters whom you love. And as the prodigal son came home, Lord, so too do we tonight. Let us not try to be normal Christians. Let us not try to blend in with our faith. Father, let us stand up for what is true and what is right. God, let us trust in the promise of life given by your Son so long ago that our eternity is with you. Lord, thank you for this table. Thank you for this reminder. May it strengthen and nourish our souls this evening. May we be men and women of truth who stand for what is right, who stand in the light, and who bring light to the dark places of this world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this table. Thank you for this covenant you've made with us. We happily partake in it, Lord. Amen.